Hello, everyone. My name is Jason Brooks, and thank you to another episode of Scoliosis Dialogues. I am a pediatric orthopedic surgeon at the Scottish Rite Hospital for Children in Dallas, and I am very excited to be talking with uh, two mentors and friends uh, who are going to help us to better understand what our theme has been for this month of Scoliosis Awareness Month, which is what does pregnancy look like after having a previous surgery for scoliosis? Uh, today, I'm honored to uh, have Dr. Sukhan Shah, as well as Dr. Noel Larson. Dr. Shah, can you kind of tell us where you're from and kind of what your practice looks like? Sure, Jason. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm Sukhan Shah from Nemours Children's Hospital in Wilmington, Delaware, and I take care primarily for children with scoliosis. Dr. Larson, uh, can you tell us a little about yourself and kind of where you're practicing and what your practice looks like? For sure. I'm a pediatric spine surgeon and general peds ortho at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. And I do have a long standing interest in what happens to patients after they've completed their childhood care. So um, some of what we'll talk on today would be um, long-term outcomes of scoliosis. And I think pregnancy is part of it. It's a common concern for patient and families. Well, that's perfect. For those of you all who have not already heard our previous podcast, you definitely have to check it out. It was with uh, a previous patient of Dr. Vern Tolo, uh, who went on after having her spine fused as a teenager to be a Victoria's Secret model. And now she's a mother. And she has really been able to share her experiences about what life was like. And kind of in quick summary, it's been great. She was able to do everything that she wanted to do, uh, including having children. Um, but, you know, uh, when it comes to the actual data behind what the experiences are like, we have uh, two authors from great papers here uh, that are going to help us to better understand this. And so the first paper I would love to chat about is uh, the paper titled Outcomes of Pregnancy in Operative versus Non-Operative Adolescent Idiopathic Scoliosis Patients at a Mean of 30-Year Follow-Up. This is a really cool paper where they looked at patients 30 years later to kind of see uh, how, uh, how they fared after having their scoliosis uh, surgery as teenagers. And these patients were from 1975 to 1992. And so Dr. Larson, could you tell us how did you go about collecting patients over such a long period of time? Is this just a, a database that the Mayo Clinic already had or how did this work? This was actually a Scoliosis Research Society uh, directed research grant that we got between myself and Dr. Yazemski um, around 2012, 2013. And again, I have an interest in long-term outcomes. And I found out that Mayo had childhood x-rays for scoliosis patients starting in 1975. Mm -hmm. uh, so when I started back on staff here, I pulled up all these x-rays. Uh, and we had, you know, 500 x-rays in my office and I pruned through and picked children that had a curve at least of 35 degrees in childhood. And then with the SRS funding, um, we were able to send a survey and find about 120 patients in the total cohort of 325. And then we actually brought 70 uh, or so back for in-person x-rays, pulmonary function tests, health-related quality of life um, metrics and new x-rays. After we'd finished that, I'm like, oh shoot, I should have asked them more about pregnancy and radiation and occupational risk. And after I had kind of completed the initial wave, I had a whole nother round of more questions. But what we were able to do is basically review patients who had delivered a child at 
Mayo Clinic Rochester, of which there were 60, and look at that smaller cohort and see what were the incidences of C-section and it correlate to the childhood treatment of scoliosis. Okay, that's really interesting. Now, you know, this may be a question that you may not know the answer to, but my general uh, gestalt from kind of hearing other colleagues who are like OBGYNs or just from other moms is that there seems to be a general national uptick in uh, women getting C-sections in general for for birth. And so I don't know if you all looked at, did the level or number of C-sections in your group of patients, was that higher than what was happening in patients who never had you know, scoliosis in the general community? We have actually in the state of Minnesota, very good um, annualized C-section rates published for the state. So in this paper, we compared it both to the national rates of C-section over time, and then also to the state-based levels of C-section over time. And we did find in the non-operative and the operative cohort, a slightly higher rate of C-section in the scoliosis patients compared to the general state rates. We couldn't really tease out of the medical record, like why were the scoliosis patients getting the C-sections? Is it harder to do an epidural for or a spinal injection for pain control? Um, was the person in greater pain prior to delivery? Because as we know from Dr. Grabala's paper, patients with scoliosis and who are pregnant have more back pain maybe than the average pregnant person. So it's very hard to tease out what was the indication for a C-section. And I think of all these three papers as just a great jumping off point to um, hopefully further more prospective uh, high quality studies on the topic. And for our patients who are listening to this podcast, uh, Dr. Noel and her cohort, uh, Dr. Pasha is on this paper also. They found that 29% of patients uh, who had, uh, had scoliosis but didn't receive surgery had a C-section um, versus uh, for those patients who did have surgery for the scoliosis and that refused to L3 or lower, 46% of those patients required a C-section versus if that patient had only been fused to L2, 32% of those patients had a C-section. As you mentioned, overall, um, uh, patients with scoliosis did have a higher level of C-sections, but for the patients who are not medical, uh, what does it matter to be fused to L3 or L2? Um, you know, is that something that patients should be asking their, you know, surgeons to, you know, to not fuse to L3 or like how, if a patient's hearing this, what do you think they should be asking their surgeons when it comes to the fusion level at the end of their construct? I think all patients and surgeons want to fuse as little of the spine as, as necessary. There are established rules in the literature um, regarding what's safe to, uh, when is it safe to stop at L3 or when do you have to go to L4? I think more and more so, we, we rarely go to L4 and um, I'd rather go to L2 than L3 if I, if I possibly can for a fusion. Um, of all the different reasons to worry about your fusion levels, I would put pregnancy maybe at the bottom of the list um, because the data is fairly preliminary. Uh, these patients had their scoliosis treatment a long time ago. They had their deliveries and were pregnant now a long time ago. Um, so I, I hope that as technology improves and that um, as uh, hopefully the OB community becomes more aware of, of scoliosis and hopefully better at providing um, peripartum um, pain control, um, that this trend doesn't hold long-term. But in general, we'd like to fuse less spine rather than more. We know fusing more of the spine puts people at 
greater risk of adjacent segment disease or actually maybe de decrease quality of life if you're fused to L4 compared to L2. Um, but sometimes there's nothing we can do, right? If it's a severe curve, a stiff curve, an older patient, it would be better to, to fuse to the proper level rather than cut short and have a revision surgery five years later. That's excellent. Dr. Shah, you uh, published a paper in the World Neurosurgery uh, Journal in 2019 titled Back Pain and Outcomes of Pregnancy After Instrumented Spinal Fusion for Adolescent Idiopathic Scoliosis. Um, what made you all decide to pursue this topic? Were you getting a lot of questions from your patients asking whether they were going to have back pain when they became pregnant or were the questions you were getting more so, can I get pregnant when I get older? Like what prompted you all to specifically look at the, the back pain question? Well, I don't think um, these questions come up around the time of surgery so much. For me, they come up at the time of transition to adulthood. At our institution, we follow uh, you know, the patients until 21. So this uh, comes up at the last visit when we're sort of saying goodbye. And I leave them with some of the messages that, that we found in this article and others um, and Noel's work as well, that um, these are some things to think about and to ask about. But what prompted this study is um, Paolo Grabala, who's a, surger, a surgeon in Poland, um, had access to a massive number of um, a massive number of women who were pregnant, uh, many of whom were his patients and his mentors' patients who had scoliosis surgery. And so we were uh, fortunate to collaborate with him and, and look at this database. And after looking at this database, I realized that there were quite a few number of women who had scoliosis surgery five years ago, went on to get pregnant, sometimes numerous times, have their children in this hospital, and he had access to how they were doing, what kinds of deliveries they had, what kind of anesthesia they had, and also compared them to uh, women who had not had scoliosis surgery, but also had children at that hospital. And so the nice thing about this paper, there's there a comparative group of women around the same age um, that you can really look at to compare um, in terms of a control group, which is really important because otherwise we could just anecdotally say that women with scoliosis surgery might have this, this, and this, but this paper actually compared the rates of C-section and whether epidurals were successful and also looked at their quality of life and satisfaction with their, with, with their sexual history and whether they had sexual dysfunction. So I think there's a lot to, to think about. And scoliosis surgery is one thing, but we obviously have a lot of patients who have never had surgery, who were braced, who might have curves in the 30s and 40s. How do they do is a question that I also get into the adult transition. And, and we know there's pretty good literature to show that your curve at maturity, as long as it's less than 40 degrees, should be pretty stable, whether you become pregnant or not. And I don't think most people with moderate sized curves should worry that pregnancy is going to increase their curvature or change their natural history in adulthood. I think the reassuring thing from all these studies is that there was not um, a higher rate of miscarriage. Uh, mm -hmm. Women with scoliosis were having on average the same number of children as the average population. Interestingly, Sukhan, I do get this question usually from the mom um, at the pre-op visit. Um, <laughs> Yeah. And it comes up to the point where we were doing a um, shared decision tool for fusion versus observation for families trying to decide yeah. whether to have a fusion surgery for their skeletally mature 16-year-old with a 50-degree curve. And uh, at one point, we had pregnancy as one of the headings on the shared decision tool because wow. it came up in so many of our videos. Ultimately, we took it off because we didn't really know what it would do for the, the, the smaller group of male patients, but um, yeah. it was yeah. kind of one of the topics we floated. But so, scoliosis is eight times more common, uh, or severe scoliosis is eight times more common in 
females versus males. And I suppose carrying a baby is one thing that, that women do that men don't, right. at least uh, through a pregnancy. I, I think getting pregnant isn't an issue. There doesn't seem to be any issue there. I think there doesn't seem to be any issue in whether you can go to full term versus preterm. I think these studies and others show uh, that that's pretty equal. The real question is whether C-section versus standard delivery um, is a difference. And I think there is, at least in the articles that we're speaking about here. And Noel touched on this earlier. Are they counseled to have a C-section or is there something happening during labor that prevents them from going on to a vaginal delivery? Um, and I think it's the former. I think obstetricians may not know um, or may not counsel their patients that a vaginal delivery is possible. Uh, and Lindsay Ellickson very eloquently talked about how she became an advocate for herself and met with her OB and said, this is my birth plan. And sometimes you want to choose a provider that's going to listen to you and, and make sure that uh, if that is your birth plan, they want to cooperate to the extent it's going to be safe for both you and your child. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And uh, being an advocate for your own care, I think is, is something that is a great take home point. Uh, from our last podcast episode and something not necessarily, of course, uh, that we couldn't mention in these you know, papers, but that's a, um, that's a great thought. Um, your paper, Dr. Shah, though, it did talk about the amount of back pain that yep. these patients were experiencing. And while, yes, being able to have a child is, is great, potentially needing to have a C-section is maybe not so great for some, but it, it, it's not the end all. But when it comes to long-term back pain, did you all come to any conclusions about, about why, why that was occurring? I mean, is there, and I don't know this data either, is there a general history of con- persistent back pain uh, that, uh, that occurs in women who are having babies even after they've had the baby versus just the perinepartum time period? Like does, does having scoliosis just potentiate back pain that was already going to be there? Or is there something particularly bad about have, having had surgery and then being pregnant with just a massive increase in back pain. Those are all fantastic. That's a lot to unpack. I mean, I think anyone, uh, any woman who's been pregnant knows that 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 state can aggravate back pain or even cause transient back pain. So there's a certain amount of back pain in the control population, but here's what the study found. And remember that this was just a questionnaire as a snapshot in time. This didn't rate, you know, their 10 year experience with, um, being pregnant and raising children. And even picking up your kids can cause back pain as we were speaking about before. But what we can, what, what the data says is that women who've had spine surgery and then went on to get pregnant had a slightly higher incidence of back pain during that time. And that women who were fused lower, uh, L3 and L4, there was a direct correlation to the incidence of back pain to the level fused, which I think that we have a sense that that might be the case, but this was, this was true and, and it was significantly different. But you have to realize that I think we're getting better at doing surgery. We have a much better recognition of the sagittal plane. We're trying to avoid fusing to L4. And if we do fuse to L4, we certainly make sure that the sagittal profile and preservation of lordosis is key. So I think we're getting better at, at the problem, but it's something to be aware of that it could be a possibility. And this is another great thing that, that Lindsay talked about is keeping your core strong, making sure you had good flexibility in your glutes and your hamstrings and taking care of your body almost like a prehab before the delivery and then staying in shape afterwards will probably decrease the incidence of pain as was her experience. That's excellent. You know, and uh, it, it, it is important to point as 
both of y'all said that in, in your paper uh, that your patient uh, cohort started, uh, ha had surgery from 1998 on to 2015, and with Larson, your patient cohort, 1975. And so clearly our, the way we fix these spines has improved really massively every year. And, uh, and, and so uh, we may need to have a follow-up sort of study like this, really looking at patients who have had these surgeries with modern instrumentation uh, and modern techniques to see if there is a significant difference. But now, as you all are seeing your you know, patients, you've done these projects, you understand, hey, the numbers weren't very large. So it's not like this is necessarily changing your practice. But do you have a different type of conversation with your patients at all based on uh, this uh, research? Or do you leave it as like, look, we need to look into this topic more, do more research, but it's not necessarily changing my practice yet or changing my pre-surgical or post-surgical discussions? You talk to my patients about back pain. And um, out of the, the total cohort, we actually had, I think, 180 patients with uh, patient-reported outcomes, and they were 10% worse than age-matched, gender-matched, BMI-matched controls. So I think people with scoliosis who've had operative treatment or significant scoliosis greater than 35 degrees in childhood with non-operative treatment, I mean, I think those people have more back pain in adulthood. And I, I counsel families that if their child's having back pain now, we need to get on top of it and get that core really strong, get them involved in aerobic activity, get the pain under control. Because I, I do think our scoliosis patients in adulthood face more back pain. And I think the back pain from the pregnancy is just kind of an exacerbation of that underlying incidence of back pain. Regarding pregnancy and C-section, I just feel like it's a lot for families to contemplate. They're already going into spine surgery. Uh, they have a million things to worry about. So I just try to be very reassuring and say, to the best of our knowledge, people after scoliosis surgery have, have healthy babies. They have the typical number of babies um, and you're just gonna have a great future. So I, I try to keep it at beat because I feel like these are small studies. And, and as we mentioned, there might be factors with the OB practice. There might be factors with the way we historically did the surgery, which it's now improved, that, that are going to be better 20 or 30 years from now. Yeah, I'm very much the same. You got to keep it upbeat because um, the facts are, it, it's pretty good. Um, there might be some pitfalls to think about. One thing we didn't really discuss yet is anesthesia. And uh, that's part of your birth plan too. If you decide you'd like to have epidural anesthesia, sometimes an anesthesiologist might ask about your scoliosis history. It's really important to know where you're fused to, what your levels are because some anesthesiologists may be willing to take on a difficult patient who's had scoliosis surgery and really wants to give them a good birthing experience. And if you don't want to have anesthesia, um, that's something else to talk to your, your OB and your anesthesiologist about. I think what makes it difficult is the most common placement for epidural anes um, anesthesia is L3-4, which means if you're fused to L4, typically that inner space is not available to the uh, average anesthesiologist, but that's okay there's two inner spaces below that. And a very skilled anesthesiologist should be able to put an epidural catheter in those spaces too. The difference may be the level of pain control might be a little bit different if they have to go to those other levels. So these are all things that are very specific and can be customized. But again, the message is know about your body and know what's available to you and try to find a team that's willing to talk to you about that. Absolutely. And, you know, it was very interesting uh, listening to the interview uh, with, you know, Lindsay, how she talked about, especially when she had her second child, she had kind of went into the process of, uh, of really wanting to uh, have an epidural, 
and uh, kind of um, trying to find an anesthesi uh, a anesthesiologist that would do it despite her fusion down to L4. And pretty much she, um, at the time that she gave birth, she walked in and the, and the anesthesiologist that was there at the time said, nope, you're not getting anything. That's right. That's <laughs> and right. there's like no discussion. She's like, yeah, can't do it. And so fortunately she had planned for it. She had, she had uh, gone through her breathing exercises that she needed in order to get through it without any um, kind of a pain control. And she went through it fine. Um, like many women all across the world do. And, uh, and so, but I do think it speaks to the nature of a, it. It is harder to, to have your birth exactly the way you want it uh, based on kind of how low you got fused. It's generally good to see that these patients do well, that long-term they're able to have uh, uh, fulfilling kind of lives as, as well as uh, uh, be parents uh, to wonderful children and have as many kids as they want. And our hope is that potentially maybe we can uh, do uh, additional research in the future, highlighting uh, how patients do do with modern instrumentation, uh, not to kind of uh, steal any ideas that you guys have, but do you have any kind of future ideas for projects related to this topic that you may want to give us a sneak peek on for SRS 2023 or 2024, or maybe not? <laughs> Noel's, Noel's got plenty of good ideas in the yeah, pipeline, I'm sure. Nothing at the moment. But we need more work. So let's yeah. let's keep this topic fresh in our minds. The girls we treat today are going to be women and middle-aged women and elderly women someday. Absolutely. So it's important to to not finish the follow-up at two years. Yeah, and I think a good a good project might be to educate our, our OB friends and just make them aware that um, you know doors aren't closed just because you had scoliosis surgery. You should uh, be willing to explore and try different things. Yeah, it would be interesting to see if we could survey kind of a national OB organization um, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and see if, if we can get at that data. Um, that, so. that would be that would be a great collaboration. Well, Dr. Shah, Dr. Larson, thank you so much for your time today uh, for talking about your projects. And uh, I look forward to seeing you all in person at the SRS annual meeting in Sweden. Thank you, Jason. It was a pleasure to be here. And thanks to the SRS staff for this uh, great work. Agreed. Thank you so much. The Scoliosis Research Society is a nonprofit professional organization made up of physicians and allied health personnel. Their primary focus is on providing continuing medical education for healthcare professionals and on funding and supporting research in spinal deformities. Please visit srs.org for further information.